Content warning, misogyny, eugenics, slavery, blood, and space vampires. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. beyond the Egyptians in that dimness out of which some echoes of half-mythical names, Atlantis, Mu, somewhere back of history's first beginnings, there must have been an age when mankind, like us today, built cities of steel to house its star-roving ships, and knew the names of the planets in their own native tongues, heard Venus's people call their wet world Sha'ardal in that soft, sweet, slurring speech, and mimicked Mars's guttural Lactes from the harsh tongues of Mars's dryland dwellers. You may be sure of it. Man has conquered space before, and out of that conquest, faint, faint echoes run still through a world that has forgotten the very fact of a civilization which must have been as mighty as our own. The tale of Smith's scars would make a saga. From head to foot, his brown and sunburnt hide was scored with the marks of battle. The eye of a connoisseur would recognize the distinctive tracks of knife and talon and rayburn, the slash of the Martian drylander Krug, the clean, thin stab of the Venusian stiletto, the crisscross lacing of Earth's penal whip, but one or two scars that he carried would have baffled the most discerning eye, that curious convoluted red circlet, for instance, like some bloody rose on the left side of his chest, just where the beating of his heart stirred in the sun-darkened flesh. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe, the podcast where we look at pulp and the origins of pop culture in sci-fi and fantasy. I'm Adam Prosser. With me is Philip Rice. Hello. Or howdy, y'all. <laughs> howdy, y'all, sort of. Um, Kinda. So, Not so, really. Yes. We've got, a, we've got an interesting... This is another one of uh, Philip's choices uh, this time. And it turned out a little interesting because... Um, well, you, you, as you know, we were looking at uh, space westerns last season when we looked at Lone Star Planet. But uh, Philip, you want to <laughs> you want to explain what happened with these books here, or what we found out about these books? Uh, yeah. So this is one that I actually wanted to do last season, but I was afraid because um, this is billed as the first space western, um, and um, uh, we were already doing a planet for Texans or Lone Star Planet uh, last season. So I thought, you know, we didn't want to double up and do two similar things. But reading this, it's not really a space western. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, um, the, the, um, the idea that it is comes from the fact that uh, C.L. Moore, the uh, author of, oh, we're doing 
sorry, Northwest Smith. I sh we didn't mention that. Yes. Um, by uh, C.L. Moore or Catherine Lucille Moore. Um, uh, she had originally um, come up with the character Northwest Smith as a um, Western hero or anti-hero, like a, he's a smuggler, outlaw sort of sort of guy. But um, she instead wrote him into science fiction stories, which um, she seemed to have an affinity for. She, early on, at least, she mostly wrote science fiction and fantasy stuff. Um, and um, but it's it's not even just science fiction because there are a lot of horror elements too. It's like um, the characters basically. Han Solo, but he goes up against Lovecraftian monsters every story. <laughs> yes, exactly. And on top of all of that, there's a bit of a film noir uh, feeling to it a, a bit as well. So it really is, in some ways, it's just a, an insane collision of multiple genres. And it's, it's interesting that it's that way from the start, too. When you started reading them, you kind of went, you told me, oh, it's, it's a space ca cowboy, but he fights Lovecraftian monsters. And I kind of assumed, oh, well, she probably created a space cowboy, and then it evolved into fighting Lovecraftian monsters. But, nope, right from the first story, it's it's straight up H.P. Lovecraft, basically. Cosmic horror. Uh, um, yeah, not quite Lovecraft. There's, um, she, she has uh, subtle differences, but very much in that vein in terms of the... The enemies well, that he goes up against. Okay, yeah, sorry. The first story isn't cosmic horror. It's a uh, creepy mutant horror, but it's very it's very Lovecraftian. And um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, Lovecraft didn't always deal with God. Sometimes it was just a monster or something. Right. And it's... it's But but it is, again, it is also love... It's... it's um, uh, what's the one with the two brothers, the Lovecraft story? The, the castle, um, Eastwick or oh. something? Uh, Dunwich Horror. Dunwich Horror, yeah. And um, the uh, it, it's it's got a bit of that. Uh, she definitely likes space vampires, uh, because some <laughs> variation yeah. of a space vampire <laughs> appears in something like five or six of the stories. There's 13 of them, uh, and one of them's just a very short uh, epilogue to the to the to the whole series. Um, so as as we've already mentioned, uh, it was C.L. Moore, Ka uh, Catherine Lucille Moore. Um, who uh, apparently she started using the initials not because she was a woman writing in the 30s in the pulp uh, venue, but because uh, she had a job at a bank, I believe, and she didn't want them to know uh, that she was writing pulp stories on the side. So she, uh, she, uh, she used her initials just so she wouldn't be discovered. Uh, but you do have to... I I'm sure people not knowing she was a woman was an added benefit, though. That's true, yeah. It was that... Because that... it was a very sexist industry. Still is, but, you know. Yes, yes. And that is something, you know, we'll probably dive into in a bit as well. Uh, but yes, it's it. I'm sure that that was a factor as well. I've always said, like, Lee Brackett went by, uh, you know, Lee, uh, which is just ambiguous enough that you could... Maybe it's a man, you know? Um, but, but even, like, in modern day, J.K. Rowling went with that, apparently, because of... Right. Yeah, there's a number of, uh, of authors who are female who still use... Uh, who use initials if they're worried about... Uh, especially genre stuff, if they're, they're concerned about that. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if she ever tried to pass herself off as a man, but NK Je popular writer N.K. Jemison goes by N.K. Jemison. Um, yeah, it just... Yeah, and uh, in Moore's case, people did assume she was a man. Uh, uh, she actually met her husband uh, because he wrote her a fan letter thinking, 
uh, she was a male author. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty great. It was a, it was a fan. Yeah, she got a fan letter and ended up marrying him. That's great. Um, and they wrote stories together too, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? Yeah, a few a of them in this collection as well. Yeah, yeah. He 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 was also a pulp writer. Um, but um, yeah, uh, so- yeah. There's um, uh, C. L. Moore was sort of the basis for uh, the Kira character from that DS9 episode we've discussed a few times. Right. Yeah. She was uh, set in the 50s. Uh, obviously, the times changed and. Um, she's a little different. There's a lot of Lee Brackett in her, as as we've discussed personally, and um, um, the Bashir character is married to her in the sense that she's married to a fellow pulp writer. That sort of means he's sort of based on Cutner, right. uh, her husband, but he's also very different. He's probably based on other pulp writers as well. Right. Uh, so it's not a one-to-one thing, but uh, she was definitely... A partial inspiration for that character in that episode. Right. We're talking about the Deep Space Nine episode, Far Beyond the Stars, which is very much a, a good reference point for, for pulps in general. Uh, but as we said, yeah, they definitely use elements and play around with uh, timelines and stuff, so that it doesn't quite work. It, but that does give you at least a sense of, you know, the idea that, you know... Because as far as I know, Lee Bracken and C.L. Moore, that's about it for women pulp writers right there there's no other major ones like big ones i think yeah i i I don't know of any others at least yeah and then like um when it comes to the uh uh the artists there was only one that i'm aware of which is margaret uh margaret brundage is that her name um she was one of the the uh the cover artists but yeah obviously you know the vast majority of that field were men and the stories reflect that I found that sort of with Lee Brackett as well, because I don't know if it's because they were a woman writing in a male-dominated industry, or if it was something the editors were telling them, or or what, but there is almost a sort of um, desire to be one of the guys that comes through in these stories. Um, It's Um, very... Yeah, uh, the the Northwest Smith stories are very much from the point of view of a man, uh, character at least. Um... And uh, all the the women who enter his life end up dying somehow. Yeah. Um, or they they either sacrifice themselves to save him, or in some cases he kills them. Or uh, they're for various evil. Reasons. They're in many cases they are evil space vampires. So. <laughs> in many cases, but it, in at least one, it was uh, uh, she was a link to a sort of uh, space uh, extra dimensional goddess sort of thing, like a psychic link. Right. And he killed her to save himself, basically. Yeah, yeah, he actually killed her. Like, she one. was begging for death, but you can still see a lot of... The, the character is very morally ambiguous, and we'll discuss that, but yeah. Yeah, it is... it is Even it, more so than a Han Solo type, like, this guy's a real bastard. Yeah, yeah, he... he if it was written by a man, you'd be like, Ugh, God, what a reactionary tool, you know? Like, if, if you didn't know the author was a woman, you'd definitely think it was, like, misogynist, but <laughs> as it comes out... And there's even, like, in one of the earlier stories, there's, like, a line where uh, basically Smith is drawn into the orbit of this place where they... Uh, you know, they're on Venus. There's a part of the civilization of Venus where they breed women uh, to be as beautiful as possible to the point where they get, you know, so beautiful, uh, you know, you can't they're even hard bear to, to look, look at, at them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but he also talks about their bread for beauty. Admittedly, this is the bad guy who start, who's doing this, who says this, but he says, as they, as their beauty increases, all their other qualities go away, including conscience and conscious and intelligence. And it's like, what the, 
what the hell are you talking about? Like, a woman's too beautiful. They have, you know, they don't have a, a morals or, or brains, basically. Like, again, and this was a woman writing this. It's uh, yeah, pretty Yeah, that one was a little weird. <laughs> and, and, and again, I, you, you do kind of feel like maybe she was trying to pander to the audience and that it wasn't... Like, it, it be, because it's so relentless, you kind of feel like she's like... <laughs> This ought to hold those SOBs kind of attitude, <laughs> almost. Maybe. I, I don't... I'm not sure. Um, like, it... This seemed like something she wanted to write. Yeah. Because these themes come I, up in every one of the Northwest Smith stories, at least. Yeah. Well, it's... it's it's Well, I, and then, and as you say, there is another character who kind of turns the tables on that. But um, it's, it's also possible that she saw that was what uh, the editor, Farnsworth Wright, wanted um what little i i don't want to make uh sweeping statements about farnsworth wright because he's a character he was the editor of weird tales magazines where most of these were published uh that's also where for instance uh the conan the barbarian stories were published um what i know of him makes it sound like he was definitely you know go for the lowest common denominator kind of attitude um so maybe he hadn't uh he was also uh lovecraft personally hated him uh uh, there's a story uh, Lovecraft wrote set on Venus, and there's lots of un like disgusting small animals, including the Farnoth flies, which were named after uh, him. <laughs> right. And um, uh, there was also a reference to uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was the co-writer of one of the Northwest Smith stories. Right. Uh, the Ackmans were another small creature from Venus. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, it's kind of in that in those cases, I do wonder if that's just because he didn't like editors. <laughs> because it's like an annoying creature that bothers you all the time. I mean, that fair could, enough. And this um, is this is H.P. Lovecraft. And Lovecraft didn't really like anybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So it's kind of uh, you know you, you 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 hesitate to to say one thing or another in terms of. But I do know that Farnsworth Wright. Um, some of the early Conan stories had a bit more. Um, uh, a, a bit more psychological depth to them, which uh, Wright apparently asked him to trim out like there's a passage early on in one of the conan stories where um basically he says uh he describes conan as essentially suffering from depression which uh robert e howard himself likely did also suffer from so he was just using his own uh you know his own uh, undiagnosed depression and putting it in the story and wright basically told him to take that out because it was i guess too depressing i don't know um so you know it just he, it seems like he kept steering things back to just no you know blood and babes kind of stuff so at the same time uh the northwest smith stories um as you mentioned the notes here there's a strange interiority to the like there's a somewhat of an emotional complexity it's it's very um from yeah. Northwest Smith's point of view, and it it delves into some um, ambiguous emotions and things, which uh, you wouldn't expect from this sort of square jawed type character. Yes, yeah, he's very he's very vulnerable in many ways, and it it is interesting that um, like if he has a redeeming feature, uh, it's that he's kind of a hopeless romantic. Like he gets overpower he yeah he's he you know he's he falls in with pretty women and they usually end badly it ends badly for them but um you never get the sense that he has any dislike of them and he really like gets overwhelmed with oh my god she's beautiful not just like he's horny but like <laughs> it's blasting my brain how beautiful she is i want to fall at her feet and worship her and like that that happens in three or four different stories where he's just it's 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 
a little overwrought uh, how much well, he loves Well, to be fair, they're women. also supernaturally beautiful. So. Well, well, what th there's the story where the women are, yeah, explicitly supernaturally beautiful, but there's a certain point where it just it keeps happening and you're yeah, okay, yeah. Two, two of them are supernaturally beautiful. It's true. But the, but then there's a few that anyway, it's it, it's a recurring motif throughout the story that he is a not to say he's a sucker for a pretty face is a bit of an understatement. Um and and yeah, he's he's um <laughs> <laughs> you you could say he's a bit of a himbo too, which is kind of funny. Um, that's actually the the, the that second story. Uh, the story it's called um, Black Thirst. Uh, it, it's um, it's interesting because you find out that this entity from beyond the stars has been breeding women to be beautiful, uh, and they do. You know, he does sort of they become concubines and so on, but he keeps the most beautiful for himself because he feeds on beauty. And uh, literally, like as this as this separate force, and uh, he gets to the point where he's got Smith in his thrall, and he says, you know, and hey, I haven't I haven't appreciated male beauty in a while, so you can be my uh, my next meal. <laughs> so it's yeah, it because it, it, uh, usually the descriptions of like the the physical descriptions of the book are that he's really tanned and yeah. like, sunburnt and. Uh, has scars all over his face, but he's apparently really handsome too. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 made explicit that he's, and I mean that you can imply from the fact that women seem to fall for him too all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's definitely a thing. Like this, uh, it never uh, that uh, moment aside, it never really says he's handsome, but you can tell he is. Yeah, exactly. He's a pulp like, hero. Like you can see, like a young Harrison Ford playing him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and and yeah, as we've now mentioned, he. He comes off as extremely Han Solo. Uh, he's an outlaw. Um, as the final story makes clear, he well, it, it's it's clear early on that he was um, he basically had to take it on the lamb from Earth uh, because he killed a uh, man. There's one story uh, set on Earth in the middle. He goes to New York at one point, but uh, oh, most yeah, of them are true. set. Um, but he's he's obviously on the run from the law at at all, every point. Yeah, stories. it's not just Earth. He's a he's a you know he's an outlaw. He's got you know he's got the death mark on his head and twelve systems or whatever. Uh, but he's uh, he's yeah he's he he. It is actually weird that there's a story set on Earth because they make a big thing about how much he longs to get back to Earth and how he can never. But go I, back I to think Earth. he longs for like the the rural parts of Earth. Yeah, yeah it's a, he he's always dreaming about the green fields and stuff and yeah uh, the New York scene. It's like. New York in the future, so it's, you know, right. like high walkways and things. You picture, like, you know, um, Fifth Element sort of yeah. Which scenery. Is, and, and, you know, you can you can get around it. You can build a rationale for it, but it is a bit of a shame because, you know, it is very... There's a bit of a, 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 a poignant sentiment to it that he, you know, he loves Earth, he can never go back to Earth, basically. Um, and he, and in one of the last stories, which is the big crossover story, which we'll get into in a minute, um, he does actually get to, sent back into the past and he's able to go to earth and it's wonderful that he's, he's like, I get to set foot on earth again, which he, he hasn't been able to do, but, uh, it's very much a, uh, an outlaw Western kind of story. He killed a man in a uh, duel. Yeah. To... The, the last story, the, uh, song in a minor key, which is just a few pages long, um, sort of deals with his backstory kind of like by implication right there was he, a woman he killed somebody and there was a house burning down yeah that's all we know 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think you're supposed to read that as more or less the classic. I think there are a lot of Western characters who had a very yeah, similar yeah. Uh, origin, and that's what it was, except in his case. And then you light out for the territories, except in this case. And they the sort of gave a similar origin to uh, Han Solo, too, eventually. So That's true. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah. The Probably not inspired of... by this in any way, but, you know, it's, he, he it's killed... that sort of um, thing. I, it's almost not impossible that I mean, if if Lee Brackett. Oh, the original Han Solo might have been inspired, but I mean, uh, the the prequel, the Solo prequel. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, I doubt it. If well, if they're going to Lee Brackett uh, for Star Wars, then it's not impossible he'd also read C.L. Moore and everyone had thought. Oh yeah. No, I'm saying uh, Lucas could have been influenced by Moore, but I'm talking yeah. about the. Uh, the solo origin movie. Well, but solo was also written by, um, uh, Lawrence Kasdan who wrote, uh, the original Empire Strikes Back and who literally would have worked with Lee Brackett. So there's got oh, a, fair there's enough. A, there's a bit of a connection uh, there as well. Anyway, yeah, uh, the point I is, I know that, but okay. Yeah. They're going back to the, uh, the pulps for sure. Um, now this isn't such a radical idea that it had to come from here either. Of course, it, it, there's a, any mm-hmm. number of, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. What I meant stories. was, it just a, it's the similar sort of character archetype that uh, that's used commonly. Yeah, he comes because he's um, like he's, he, he, and as I understand it, she did create him to be a Western character, possibly not even a space Western character, just a Western. Yeah, character. yeah. It was a straight up Western, and she was amused by when she decided to put him in a sci-fi story. She right. Uh, it was, she was just amused because his name was Northwest, and there's no directions in space. <laughs> right. Exactly. So she, even though uh, he does, he spends most of his time on planets. Like there's only one story where he's on a spaceship. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that sort no, of happens in between stories, but yeah. yeah. But you, you don't care about like Northwest has a roaring adventure type uh, connotation, which it doesn't have yeah. if you, you know, if you're if you're on Mars. Um, oh, also, that's not his real name. Obviously, uh, it says even Smith wasn't his real name, so we don't actually know what his name was. Right. Um, yeah. He's he's um, he's. He, he they they rapidly yeah he's he's going under a, an assumed name which they make explicit later on uh, so he rapidly progresses through three uh, three different um, uh, genres to cosmic horror Lovecraftian horror type stories um, and the stories then do get a little repetitive they do tend to be you know Smith is hanging around he either falls in with a woman who kind of lures him away or maybe he's off somewhere like in one story he's been shot down by the space patrol as a smuggler um and he's in the ruins of an ancient uh, city and stumbles across a woman uh there's one where unfortunately he signs on with a slaving ship um yeah and- that was really un uh unpleasant because it was obvious that he you know had qualms with it but he was still willing to do it for money so yeah it's very much a yeah uh uh like it's pretty clear he's an anti-hero. He doesn't have a strong moral uh, compass. The the story does make it clear, like because you you will sometimes see you know old pulp stories that kind of deal with either in the past or in a fantasy world or a futuristic fantasy world, and they'll sort of take slavery as it comes because they're you know it's if it's set in the Roman Empire, you kind of the characters take for granted. But then you when you see or in a fantasy world, but then you see it in the future and it's again, they've just transplanted various adventure stories into the future and there's slavery again somehow. Uh, so occasionally you'll see that and just it uh, you know it's gross, but it's part of the trope. But this is literally them you know more is saying, yeah, 
slavery. Not good. <laughs> but hey, I need the money, so I'm going to sign on. And and it's very much as the people I'm signing on with are bad, and they're going to get their comeuppance. I'm okay because I kind of went, well, I don't know, but I need the money. <laughs> Therefore, I'm going to, you know, Smith is going to escape punishment, essentially. But uh, Well, I mean... You could say in all these stories, he he loses a bit of his sanity in each one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a Lovecraftian sense. Like, uh, all this stuff is obviously affecting him. True. Uh, I'd say he's, you know, I do, he doesn't come off that way. Obviously, there's no real continuity or, I mean, if there was a continuity, you'd think he'd be able to, you know, figure out not to <laughs> not to keep <laughs> falling into the same situation over and over again. Uh, but. Yeah, I, I I don't get the sense of him ever having been, oh, I've seen things mankind was never meant really? to see. Really? Because the first story, um, when he um, gets uh, trapped by uh, Medusa slash vampire, right. um, and um, he, he finds the whole situation both repulsive and exhilarating, and um, his Venusian partner uh, makes him promise not to... Uh, um, if he comes across another one of these, not to go straight for it, because a lot of people do, apparently, and he says he'll try, and it implies that he might not be able to resist. Uh, maybe, but, I mean, the, it, this is the Chamblow, as it's called. Yeah, and um, but I, I got the sense, like, there, there's an addictive quality there or something, so... Well, yeah, I mean, it's she's physically that, addictive, right? That sort right? of thing like, affects you. Like, she, she kind it of... It doesn't really come up again, but... Well, it implies that she drugs you when she's feeding off of you, basically. So it's yeah. more of a that's more of a physical addiction, I'd say. Then, but I mean, yes, he's he's addicted to danger too. I mean, that's uh, that that I'll I'll buy into that. Um, oh, but we haven't really discussed the sort of setting with the Mars and Venus things, right? So um, let's yeah, I just let's wanted talk about that. Uh, they're they're populated by uh, humans, and it, it calls them humans. Um, Sort of, they're different races of humans. As we said at the beginning, the, the first story um, has a, a backstory that humans had gone into space in the distant past. So I don't know if it's like a uh, ancient astronauts thing where we populated other planets or whatnot. But, yeah, uh, the, the the way I would read it, and it's it's true. She's a, you know she's not very uh, she's pretty vague on a lot of the specifics. But one of the stories, uh, the story Dust of Gods, uh, basically implies that humans came from the fifth planet uh, that no longer exists. It was destroyed and became the asteroid belt. And there were gods of the fifth planet. And that they settled the solar system and all the other humans on all the other planets are descended from them. They certainly seem to all be the same species, even though there's, you know, they're, even though he kind of implies, you know, Venusian civilization is millions of years old and same with earth and, and venus or earth and mars uh but yeah they, uh, it also says venus is a lot younger in terms of it than earth is yeah and mars is a lot older right that's a classic uh, old solar system trope with the idea that yeah uh, that as you get closer to the sun the planets are are younger so mars is older and venus is younger than earth but um so there's usually ancient civilizations on mars and so on but in this case the really ancient civilization was on the fifth planet apparently uh, and there were three gods who do reappear at one point, although he she doesn't like make a very explicit connection between them. But anyway, so yes, that is that oh, seems I, to I, be the origin. Oh, I didn't even connect connect them as the same thing necessarily. 
Maybe well, like a... I think that there were three gods, and you can even say that we see the, the catastrophe that destroyed them <laughs> in that story. If you want to, you can kind of link it up in the my mind. The moon story? Yeah, the moon story. Um, okay. I, uh, we should... Yeah, anyway, um, but but go back, let's go back and just flesh out, the as you were saying, the, 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 yeah. the, the backstory. Yeah, uh, so... Uh, the Venusians are uh, described as extremely beautiful people. Uh, the men look like uh, like angels in old paintings, you know, choir boys or what have you. Uh, his um, sidekick is actually a Venusian named Jarl, who's um, uh, described as uh, looking like a, a choir boy, but he has sort of black eyes that have an animalistic quality to them. Um, yeah. And uh, there's one story where everybody's... Uh, being reduced to sort of animalistic states, and um, Northwest is put off by discovering that Jarl's isn't that different from his normal state. Uh, he's yeah, he's described as um, the you know the uh, the beauty of a fallen angel without Lucifer's majesty. I believe was the line she used, uh, which is kind of a good line. Um, yeah, and um, uh, the Martians. Uh, there are two types. The uh, rosy-skinned uh, canal Martians, who we don't see much of, and the uh, dryland Martians, who are sort of leathery-skinned and uh, tawny and that sort of thing. Right. The singer um, in the story, uh, I think it's... Oh, right, um, she Nicole is. Yeah. God. I believe she's a rosy canal Martian, yeah. Uh, I, what was... With the dry the dryland Martians... No, no, she was a Venusian. No, no, no. I'm pretty sure she was a Martian. They describe her as having the rosy skin. Um, what... One of the women's he meets in this, who's a major character, is one of the canal merchants, and I thought it was her, uh, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But she had a uh. she she has a non-human name anyway. It's a little yeah, it's a little weird. Um, but with the with the canal merchants and the dryland merchants, how did you read the dryland merchants? Because they sounded like the least human of the bunch at one point, but then later they're just described as kind of having leathery skin. Um, yeah, that's what I figured. Uh, just humans with leathery skin because they live in harsh conditions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For I guess there, he meets a bartender later on. Is uh yeah, who's a canal Martian who seems like a normal person. So right, drylander. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess maybe I just latched on early on. He describes all the different people from different planets, and they, I guess, it made them sound a little more exotic than the other ones. But um, but anyway, they're all humans, and they all interbreed and so on they're not they're not radically venusians are very pale because there's no sun on venus because it's so cloudy and you never see the sun basically and that's a, a standard thing lee bracken had that too on the, on venus right that, that they were pale because there's no uh sun right so yeah it's it's uh it's kind of the old old so and then and they never leave the solar system uh they kind of vaguely imply that there's far quote farther planets but it's not clear if she means other solar systems or interstellar voyagers or if she just means like out like pluto or something because almost yeah because every... there there's um there's also life on one of uh saturn's moons right in one of them yeah the jupiter and saturn jovian oh, Ju and saturn yeah. moons have life I, it was jupiter right it was jupiter yeah that's okay. uh yeah most of them most of the stories are set on either venus or mars with, as we say, a couple briefly set on Earth. I also got the sense the Werewoman one was set on Earth, but that's sort of a weird one for this collection. Yeah, I actually don't remember that one very well. But yeah, they they um, 
but one of the most interesting stories in this, let's uh, we may as well talk about this now. Uh, so, so the other big C.L. Moore pulp character that she had was uh, a character called uh, Jarell of Jouari, um, who was effectively uh, seems to have been based on the story we read. Uh, basically, what if Joan of Arc was Red Sonia, um, and she was uh, like she's uh, she's medieval French uh, or late, you know, probably about the same era as Joan of Arc, uh, warrior maiden. Um, it, it explicitly says the year fifteen hundreds, so. right? Which is that's about Joan of Arc, uh, I believe, and that that seems to be the 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 whole inspiration is that she's a fantastical version of Joan of Arc. She does more. She's not as politically uh, intertwined, but she goes around, um, you know, having adventures on her own. Also, she has, she commands an army, though, or a small legion, anyway. And um, she's um, she's got red hair, like Red Sonja. Uh, it but sounds yellow like, eyes, which was interesting. Yeah, yellow eyes, exactly. And she is very, like, you know, I want to say Conan the Barbarian-like, but also Red Sonja-like. Uh, bearing in mind that at this point, Red Sonia was uh, also a historical character. She wasn't located in the Hyborian Age in the actual Robert E. Howard stories. Uh, that's something the She comics... was French as well, right? I'm sorry? She was French as well, or uh, Russian? She's Russian, I believe, yes. Okay. Uh, the original Red Sonia is uh, Russian, again, around the same period. Uh, but I was yeah. thinking of another character of his, uh, Dark Agnes, I think. Yeah, there's a few medieval-era... Um, warrior maidens. So that probably inspired uh, C.L. Moore. Uh, but yeah, uh, Red Sonja going into a fantasy world uh, didn't happen until the comics later. They kind of repurposed her and just so she could meet Conan, essentially. And also changed the spelling of her name because it was I <laughs> instead of a J in the original. Right, right. And um, anyway, but so like just reading the story, she seems like a, not only a much more interesting character, but um, more in line, possibly, with what C.L. Moore wanted to write. Uh, it's hard not to believe a, a woman writer wouldn't rather have been writing this character. Um, so I, I almost wish... Well, we... I like the Northwest Smith stories. I oh, I, I like them, but it's just, I just... I feel And there are interesting elements to them, uh, but I kind of... I read that story, and I was like, dang, I want to read about this girl, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, there's five uh, additional stories with that character, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, it, it, it like that as I say. Remember, this is the mid '30s, so it is actually uh, kind of cool that there's a there's a uh, a female warrior character like that in the '30s. Um, but anyway, they cross over with and and so we've already talked about in the Call episode, uh, Exile of Atlantis. We talked about how Robert E. Howard engineered it so that Call and Bran MacMorn, who at the time were his most popular characters, he hadn't created Conan the Barbarian yet. Uh, they were um, they were able to cross over with each other. Uh, as I recall, Cull basically summons one of his ancestors to help him win a battle, and it turns out to be... Or, or sorry, Bran MacMorn. Bran MacMorn, who's a yeah historical Celtic warrior, uh, summons Cull, who's a fantasy warrior from a you know an antediluvian era, uh, into the present, or his present, to help fight this war. And they, they're allies. Uh, the interesting thing about the story with Northwest Smith, a wizard is fighting Jarell. Uh, and says, I'm going to go find someone to to beat you, someone who can beat you. So, of course, he leaps far into the future and uh, <laughs> and calls up a, an outlaw space cowboy to fight her um, and brings him back. And it's it, it's very Marvel Comics. That's the hilarious part of that one. 
Yeah, they fight for a bit, then they're mates. I think is the phrase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's classic. It like it, I think this basic plot structure was literally used for Marvel comics at some point or another, because it's, it's always, you know, some bad guy tricks one of the heroes to fighting his own arch nemesis hero. And then they, for a while, and then they figure it out and they team up and fight the wizard or bad guy. In this case, it's a wizard. Um, and I'm sure it's, there's been wizards who've done this in the Marvel universe, but it's, it feels so much like a Marvel comic. It's, it's quite hilarious. And this is 19, you know, 34, 35, whatever it was. Uh, what is it? 37, I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, it's straight up that. So again, you know, you feel like C.L. Moore is not necessarily the most influential writer, and yet you read that and it's hard to believe, you know, Stan Lee wasn't taking notes anyway, right? So, yeah. who knows? Um, so I wanted to discuss uh, one of the stories called Lost Paradise. Mm -hmm. uh, another sort of time travel thing through mental stuff um, mm -hmm. where uh, Northwest finds himself transported to uh, a civilization on the moon that uh, had arrived there from elsewhere. And uh, the only reason, and it was like a paradise, but the only reason there's atmosphere because the moon's not big enough to hold an atmosphere was because these three gods were keeping in place and they demanded a sacrifice every year. And the sacrifice had to be willing, um, absolutely willing. And, um, but in this case, Northwest Smith was in the sacrifice's mind, and he wasn't willing to be killed. Um, and um, he it results in the death of this civilization. So right, um, it's sort of his uh, defining character trait. This guy wants to be alive, um, <laughs> like no, like every beyond anything else. Like um, uh, unlike other characters, uh, Han Solo or whatnot, he doesn't have that sort of He's willing to sacrifice himself sort of thing. Northwest Smith is, uh, at least deep down, uh, very, um, what, what's that um, scale of uh, hierarchy of needs thing? Maslow's yeah, he just wants... hierarchy of needs? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I would argue that he is um, Han Solo-ish in that he will, like right from the first story, it's, I step in and I save this woman who's being hunted by an angry mob, which is the right thing to do in that situation. There's no... You know, there's no getting around it. So he's definitely not a guy who just, like, only looks out for number one. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But, like, I'm saying when it gets right down to it, like, he's right. not willing to sacrifice himself. Well, in that particular story, and it is very interesting to me, because what the situation is, um, is that uh, Smith and and Jarl, and it's actually Jarl who gets the plot going, uh, rescue, they find a, a, a mystery man from an ancient race, and it's the same race of people that used to have a civilization on the moon. Uh, Jarl knows enough about them, even though they're mysterious, uh, to basically say, I'll get your box that's been stolen from you back if you'll let me in on the secret in the name of Whisper, 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 and he never, you never find out the name, but he knows the name of this guy's deity. And they rescue the box, and the guy's like, okay, well, it's an important thing, so I'll do it, but and and I did swear, so I'll tell you the secret. And this is what he does: he takes them back into in their in their mind to the ancient civilization that they had. But he makes it clear that he's going to kill them once he's told them this, and then kill himself because he has to guard the secret. He's it, they're sworn to guard the secret, but he's also sworn to say, "Yeah, I have to tell you the secret because I swore I would." Uh, but then I'm going to kill you. 
So in a sense, it is kind of self-preservation on Smith's part uh, that back in the vision, he's able to sort of plant a seed of unwillingness, which destroys the civilization, which is sort of, so it's very much a, um, you know, a, a grandfather paradox kind of thing. He, he creates his own, you know, the, this guy sending it back created the destruction of the, of his own race, his own civilization, which they've been mourning for all these years. And that's basically what prevents him from killing them. When yeah. The, back. um, the man does say that Smith wasn't actually responsible. It was, um, right. It was just sort of a, uh, unfortunate twist of fate on everybody's parts and yeah exactly it's a, it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and all smith did was say hey i don't want to die <laughs> and that's enough to destroy the entire civilization apparently just but still the there, there was uh there's a thought process in the in that section where he knows that this is going to happen but he's not willing to let go of his life right well which, so i mean know. it's 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 morally ambiguous and i like that but um yeah, that was one of the more interesting. Um, it's also stories. not straight up hero stuff. Yeah, well, it's it's yeah, it's it's kind of a an extremely awkward situation to be in, essentially. And he isn't even the one who asked to find out the secret, right? It was Yarl who asked to find out the secret, and Smith and Jarl just kind doesn't of, learn anything. Yeah, exactly. The irony is that he doesn't actually keep his oath because he tells Smith, but not Yarl, and Yarl was the one who wanted to find out. So technically speaking, uh, but yeah, I like that. It's kind of a time loop paradox story, which is kind of interesting. Uh, that the, you know, the, as I say, several of the stories are pretty repetitive, but you know, three or four of them are, are rather clever and interesting. I think. Um, uh, I think more than that, but yeah, I. I yeah. Oh, there. Uh, there well, was a certain degree of repetitiveness, but I, I did like um, a lot of the the visuals and stuff. Yeah, she describes. She's got cool uh, imagery. The one where he goes in uh, Scarlet Dream, which is him trapped inside a dream. He bought a shawl with a weird pattern on it that sucks him into a dream, which he can never escape from. And it's a very, it is very dreamlike. It is very uh, hypnotic and surreal because it's this world, and the people who live there have to gather at a fountain and drink what's implied to be the blood pouring out of the fountain. It's the only thing that will feed them in this world. Uh, it's not it's, just implied, it is blood, it says it. Yeah, okay, I didn't see it actually say blood, but maybe I... It's just very, very, very strongly... It's it's a scarlet fluid, and it's gross, and so on. Um, but yeah, it's... it's. Um, no, no, it says uh, it explains why her lips tasted of blood. Right, yeah, fair enough. Um, it, um, it's, and there's also grass that uh, if you stand on it too long, it... Uh, it pricks you and uh, starts drinking your blood. Right, which is a recurring thing because the the Jovian moon also has you know living vegetation that tries to tear you up if you uh, if you push through the jungle. Yeah, uh, not not really any creatures in these stories, unfortunately. Yeah, um, it doesn't describe any like Martian wildlife or anything. Right. So I think that, that's a some at one point she sort of shared. Oh, sorry. At one point he describes the spider women or the spider gods or something yeah it just yeah. mentioned offhand but yeah that could be anything right um but it's sort of uh something she has in common with uh lee brackett who also she had a few animals but for the most part uh right mostly just human focused which is a very that's that's the thing with the pulp of this era it was not big on not, world building in many ways not necessarily edgar rice burroughs was very good at that um i i guess even yeah, then, lots it, of animals. Well, okay, fair enough. I, 
they'll have animals or whatever. I'm just saying it's it, he'll only give whatever details are needed for the story, and if it's not part of the story, it won't get fleshed out. Because like thoats and things are part of the story. He need they need Martian steeds and so on. Whereas uh, uh, you know, which is ironic. I guess it depends on your definition, but I, I feel those are pretty well fleshed out in terms of the ecosystem. Sure, anyway. fair enough. But it, yeah, it is definitely like you realize in these stories, it's just humans, humans, humans. They're all humans. <laughs> Everybody on all the different plants are humans. They have millennium, as she always says, millenniums old civilizations. And, um, but they're all humans and they're all the same species. And it, again, the implication is that they came from this lost planet from a long time ago. Anyway, it's uh, life here began out there. Yeah. Exactly. So, as, as you can see, this has been, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, even just the whole Atlantis myth and the uh, the uh, antediluvian civilization thing was in pulp for many years before that, so why not transfer it to outer space, as with everything else about this story? Um, anyway, it's... Um, uh, I, I would recommend these stories. Like you said, there's a bit of repetition there, and you don't... There's absolutely no reason to not just take one out of context and read it. It works fine on its own. Right, yeah. Any I'd, one. So. I'd say read or one or two. Read Chamblow, read uh, Lost Paradise, read Quest of the Starstone, and who knows, maybe we'll come back and read the Jarell stories, because I kind of want to read more of those. I want to learn more about her. But yeah, they're very... Yeah, yeah, I got a copy, but I, I didn't have time to read the five stories this week, but... Yeah. Um, that's um, fine. Like I, I said, was interested. Yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll have a look at them. But yeah, she's and she is she's. It's interesting because she's a. She has some very good turns of phrase. She ha her writing is very good at parts, but then there's some parts where I thought it wasn't good. <laughs> um, I think she's a little bit. Um, uh, she goes on and on and on. It, it's the it's classic a bit purple, of, but um... right, very purple, and possibly be, because she was being paid by the world. Um, and and in the um, same, I, I felt there was a certain degree of sort of. I think it's been described as like a sensuality to it. It's very. Um, it describes how things uh, feel and how you know they smell and right. Um, and that that's not common with this kind of writing. Well, yeah, no, it's when it when sh when she's on, it works very well. She's she's very she's got a great texture and a great feel, and like I say, very dreamlike feel to some of what she's writing that makes it very hypnotic. And she's clearly influenced by Lovecraft. Like it's the Lovecraft feel. That's the other tie to Lovecraft is his use of you know f of words to kind of draw you in and create atmosphere. She does the same thing. Um, I feel like occasionally she goes like as I say in Black Thirst. Uh, as she has to keep accelerating the descriptions of how beautiful the women are, as he keeps going to the next level, it starts to get a little silly in my mind. <laughs> like she, she has to keep ramping it up more and more. And there's a few bits where I feel like, you know, I don't know if it was the the deadline or something. It felt a it didn't click quite as well as it would. But there are definitely passages where it works very well to me. Um, so she she can definitely turn a phrase uh, when she wants to, but. Uh, yeah, which again, and it is it is purple in the classic pulp fashion. Um, yeah, so she um, uh, later on uh, wrote. She sort of uh, gave up uh, science fiction and fantasy after a while. Uh, yeah, even though it seemed to be her preferred genre, at least early on. Uh, she wrote for some TV shows later on. Mm -hmm. uh, did some screenplays, uh, but uh, seemed to stop writing altogether when she married a. Uh, uh, her second husband after uh, 
Henry Kuttner died. Um, and uh, he seemed to be, uh, there's not a lot of information on this guy, but he seemed to be not very supportive of her writing. Yeah. Um, because she stopped when uh, she married him. Mm -hmm. And um, later on, she was uh, going to be um, awarded the title of Grand Master of the Science Fiction Writers of America. And um, he said that it would just upset her because she was suffering from Alzheimer's at the time. Right. And that would have made her so the first. I, I, that, and that, that I, I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions on him. Maybe that right. was true. But you get somewhat of a feeling he wasn't very. Yeah, that it was kind of you're done writing. And and to be clear, that would have made her the first uh, uh, female uh, grandmaster of science fiction if they'd given her that title. Um, so that that is also a, a notable uh, milestone for her as well. But yeah, she she basically uh, she did talk about writing still apparently by the seventies. So you oh know. yeah, she was um, she was uh, a member of all sorts of um, um, discussion groups and stuff. Right. That sounds like she was online. Um, <laughs> well, she was got definitely at conventions, so I she wasn't yeah, completely. She cut would off. have been online if the online had existed. Right. Yeah. She wasn't cut off from the science fiction community for sure, and she must have been known. And again, that was sort of, especially the seventies. That was kind of the era when everyone kind of got back into the old pulp stuff, late sixties and seventies. Um, but yeah, she didn't really produce anything after sixty three. So her heyday is the the uh, the thirties and. She was uh, pretty good. So they're, you know, not not necessarily the first female pulp author, but probably the first major female pulp author um, of uh, of American sci-fi and fantasy. Well, we've rode hard and experienced horrors unnameable, so it's time to find a dryland saloon, shake off the red dust of the Martian Trail, and drink Segir whiskey to still the nightmares until we pass out asleep. We are the Space Outlaws extraordinaire, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice, and if you like the show, we'd be mighty grateful if you'd subscribe to our Patreons, that's under Philip Rice or Adam Prosser at patreon.com, or go to neversleepsnetwork slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, we know money's tight all around, so if you can't subscribe, you can also help us out by leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcatcher or podcast app of your choice or just tell a friend or link to us on social media. You can follow us for news and updates on WMU Podcast on Twitter, or the two hosts individually are at SpearHalfFalk underscore for Phil, or Prankster36 for Adam. We also have Facebook and Tumblr pages. Once again, it's all at NeverSleepsNetwork slash series slash what-mad-universe. Thanks once again to our partner in crime, Alex Ross, and the singing cowboy from Beyond Space and Time, Jack Furick, for writing the theme song. Happy trails to all of you, and uh, stay away from the unknowable void of existence. <laughs> <laughs>